Welcome to War of the Words. I'm your host, Wayne Besson. On today's show, we'll discuss right-wing Republican efforts to take away life-saving HIV prevention drugs. Yes, it's as crazy and dangerous as it sounds. Then we interview Catherine Stewart. She has reported on the religious right for more than a decade. She is the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Stay tuned. We have a fabulous show ahead. Each morning, I start my day by popping the pill. I reach into my medicine cabinet, grab a bottle of Truvada, also known as PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, place the pill in my mouth, and swallow it. Just like that, I magically live another day without worrying about catching HIV since the drug blocks transmission of the virus. Sure, I could still get hit by a bus, but when they conduct an autopsy, I'll be HIV negative. This extraordinary pill is nothing short of a modern miracle. But if prominent members of the religious right get their way, they will use the long arm of the law to reach inside medicine cabinets and snatch away HIV prevention pills. These busybodies will choose for me and others as if we are helpless children or options for protecting our lives against a virus. Right now, you might be saying, no, this can't be true. Is this happening in America? But given the rightward shift to the Supreme Court and the radical direction of the Republican Party, where else would it happen? The Advocate reports that the mastermind behind Texas's draconian abortion law, former Solicitor General Jonathan Mitchell, has turned his attention to PrEP. His private legal practice filed a federal lawsuit in 2020, Kelly versus the United States of America, on behalf of clients who disagree with the Affordable Care Act's mandate that insurance providers cover HIV preventative medications. The lawsuit states, quote, the PrEP mandate forces religious employers to provide coverage for drugs that facilitate and encourage homosexual behavior, prostitution, sexual promiscuity, and intravenous drug use. It also compels religious employers and religious individuals who purchase health insurance to subsidize these behaviors as a condition of purchasing health insurance. Speaking on behalf of the plaintiffs, the suit claims, quote, neither they nor any of their family members are engaged in behavior that transmits HIV. That's interesting because none of my family members are smokers, drug addicts, alcoholics, suffer from fatal heart conditions or deal with mental health issues associated with religious fanaticism. Meanwhile, nine of the 10 states ranked highest in obesity are red states, yet my family is relatively thin and no one has diabetes. None of my family members sunbathe either, as thousands of Texans do in Galveston or Corpus Christi, just begging for skin cancer. Yet my tax dollars presumably are covering maladies associated with these behaviors. In a civilized society, that's how medical care works. We pull our money together to help people in their time of need. We don't get a multiple choice form to pick which treatments for diseases we'll fund with our tax dollars. This selfish myopic brand of thinking brings to mind Republican Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. He opposes federal disaster relief when it's needed by states other than his own. However, when tornadoes whipped through Kentucky in 2021, Senator Paul came hat in hand, hypocritically begging for federal disaster funds. He asked President Biden to, quote, move expeditiously to approve the appropriate resources for our state, citing loss of life and severe property damage. Hmm, where was that concern for victims of Hurricane Sandy in 2013 when Rand Paul opposed federal funds? Ultimately, the PrEP situation 
is about religious nutcases feverishly working to impose their worldview. They have installed an activist Supreme Court that is eagerly working to slam a wrecking ball into the wall separating church and state. Having overturned Roe v. Wade, these fanatics are emboldened. They are seeking to strip away as many rights as possible as quickly as they are able. Where will they stop? They won't until they are forced to by public outrage and protest or elections that throw the right-wing bums out of office. If they are given free reign, your living room will morph into their church sanctuary. To these zealots, you're either a true believer or a grand deceiver. Individual will or liberty of conscience doesn't count for the unbeliever because they are considered in bondage and deceived by the devil. True freedom to these crazies only exists through their version of Jesus, who is the author of liberty, they say. Such convoluted thinking allows these right-wing Christians to take away rights while sincerely believing that they are doing you a favor. Still, it's difficult for me to comprehend how anyone who calls himself pro-life or a Christian could be anti-prep. Ideologues like Jonathan Mitchell would say that those who have sex outside heterosexual marriage should face consequences for ungodly behavior. However, if you intentionally deprive otherwise healthy people of a pill that prevents the transmission of a virus, you're deliberately orchestrating and manufacturing consequences that otherwise would not exist. You're consciously making people sick because you would rather see them dead than enjoy sex in which you disapprove. It's difficult to see how essentially murdering people to make them conform is godlier than the supposedly ungodly behavior you're trying to preempt. The puerile idea that passing homophobic laws will somehow lead to LGBTQ people becoming celibate or heterosexual is a tired fundamentalist fantasy. For decades, they pushed conversion ministries. Most of these groups collapsed when their supposedly cured ex-gay leaders had sex with their clients, or they came out of the closet to announce their miserable conversion camps had failed. The thoughtless, arrogant actions of Mitchell isn't going to lead to less gay sex, but it will lead to riskier sex that places lives in danger. I'm talking from personal experience. For most of my adult life, sex was a potentially deadly act. At the age of 18, I moved to Fort Lauderdale. It was 1988, at the height of the HIV epidemic, and South Florida perennially had some of the nation's highest infection rates. There were condoms, of course, but those occasionally break. In drunken, late-night flings, they could also slip off, and it would be difficult to notice. And, of course, there was the human factor. In the heat of the moment, with the chemistry just right and the mood picture perfect, People get lost in passion and have unprotected sex all the time. It's the same scenario that explains every lost virginity, unplanned pregnancy, or what-the-hell-let's-get-naked moment in human history. People make irrational decisions based on emotion every single day, especially if sex is involved. The beauty of PrEP is that it's a safety net for those moments in life when you walk the high wire. There are other sexually transmitted diseases other than HIV, so it's wiser to wear a condom. The reality, however, is that sex feels better without condoms, so people often choose not to wear them. That's the real world, not the delusional ideological universe occupied by extremists like Mitchell. If people have their prep taken away, many healthy, happy individuals will fall ill. Others will die. Those lost in the name of religious fanaticism could have reached full life expectancy 
had their futures not been robbed by the pro-life. It's difficult for empathetic people to grasp what's happening, but Mitchell and his sociopathic religious clients simply don't care. They demand that you embrace their nasty, angry version of God while you're on earth. If you don't follow their prescribed path, they're perfectly willing to hasten your departure to the afterlife. Unless you share their archaic value system or happen to be a fetus, your life isn't worth the paper your birth certificate is printed on. If attacking PrEP availability isn't enough, Republican bullies in Congress are strategizing to pass new federal anti-transgender legislation. Reuters reports these efforts would roll back protections for transgender people, setting a playbook for action on a divisive social issue should they take control of Congress this fall. Perhaps most disturbing of all, right-wing Republicans reflexively questioned the veracity of a story that claimed a 10-year-old Ohio girl was raped and had to go to Indiana for an abortion. For instance, Fox News host Emily Campagno said, quote, What I find so deeply offensive, they had to make up a fake one. Fox News' Jesse Waters also soiled the airwaves by saying that if the story was not correct, the mainstream media and President Joe Biden would be seizing on another hoax. It's nice to know he conveniently injected doubt into a story about a child rape victim with no evidence or supporting facts. On Wednesday, the Columbus Dispatch reported that a man has been charged in the case. Police said that Gerson Fuentes, quote, confessed to raping the child on at least two occasions when she was nine years old. It really doesn't get any slimier than sending out your ruthless attack dogs to undermine the story of a suffering and scared little girl who was raped and impregnated by a predator. It shows you how these conservative dregs of society have no principles, and they will wade into any moral sewer to advance their dishonest narratives. Meanwhile, Oklahoma Republican Senator James Langford blocked a Democratic bid to unanimously pass a bill attempting to protect interstate travel for abortion. Apparently, Republicans now want to monitor women's travel and hunt down those suspected of terminating pregnancies. Think about this. It's terrifying. Just imagine a hypothetical scenario where a pregnant woman is excited about having a baby. She's going to be a mom. Unfortunately, she has a miscarriage while visiting a friend out of state. The grieving woman returns home only to face a right-wing inquisition to determine if her miscarriage was legitimate or an abortion. A couple of months earlier, she made the fatal mistake of sending an abortion joke to a friend in a text message. It's used during the trial as evidence against her, and she's convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. The potential for persecution and outright abuse in red states cannot be overstated. The right-wing cave dwellers seeking to control our lives are cruel and primitive. They must be ferociously fought and soundly defeated with every ounce of energy we can muster. To say they want to turn back the clock is too kind. They would take our society back to the sundial if they could. Children of the Enlightenment, this is a call to rise up to save America and prevent our country from descending into a backward, bigoted, and brutish dark age. We are the only thing that stands between a broken nation run by religious fanatics, a Gilead, and a reasonable, rational country that believes in diversity, that believes in pluralism, that believes that all people are created equal, a country with a promising future. What type of nation do you want? 
What type of country do you want to raise your children in? The answer is clear to me. So let's join together and keep America free. Catherine Stewart has reported on the religious right for more than a decade. She is the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Welcome to the show. What initially got you interested in covering the topics of religious extremism and religious nationalism? Well, I first got into the topic in 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my husband and kids. My daughter was about six years old and she was attending a public elementary school. And then I learned that a good news club was coming to that school. You know, uh, I heard they were teaching Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. But look, I'm a big free speech supporter. I think we can teach about the Bible, even in public schools, from a truly non-sectarian standpoint as, you know, literature, history, storytelling, things like that. But I started to hear stories from parents in town whose kids attended these public schools where good news clubs had been established. And I started hearing how the kids attending the clubs were targeting their peers for faith-based bullying and bigotry. So the kids attending the club would say to other kids, you're going to go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. And I know it's true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. So this is the thing. Good news clubs target children in their various, very earliest years of learning. The centerpiece of their program is called the Wordless Book. It's used to convert children who are too young to read to a deeply fundamentalist form of the Christian faith. You know, I thought this was sort of frankly inappropriate in a diverse public school setting, but I also sort of thought it was a relic of the past. But the more I learned about Good News Clubs and the organization behind Good News Clubs, which is called the Child Evangelism Fellowship, the more concerned I became. So I, I, I was especially interested in the legal precedent that had allowed these deeply sectarian clubs to be taught in public schools. And as soon as I started researching that, I recognized that these Good News Clubs were just one small part of a much larger war on public education. And the war on public education was really just one small part of a much larger war on America as a modern constitutional democracy. Were you able to get anywhere um, with these good news clubs? What was the end result of that? I published some little piece in the Santa Barbara Independent about good news clubs and uh, what I learned about them. And I started hearing from parents all over the country very little had been published about these good news clubs and that are, you know, targeting little kids with the misinformation that they're going to go to hell without Jesus in their public schools. So all these parents, it was like there's this pent up concern about these clubs. And I just recognized that I had to do more research. So I actually went to their national convention. I went to some good news clubs around the country. I went through one of their training positions and I and I realized that thanks to a 2001 Supreme Court decision, the religious right had sort of set up over time. They had redefined religion in, in this way as to diminish or, or destroy the establishment clause. Traditionally meant separation of church and state means you shouldn't have any religion in public schools in the way that it's going to denigrate or support any particular religious viewpoint. You can teach about religion from an point of view, but you shouldn't endorse or denigrate any, any form of faith. In a society as inevitably, irreducibly diverse as ours, we can't have these kinds of sectarian 
groups operating in, in public schools or public school official teaching or, or proselytizing to children and still call this a kind of um, a constitutional system. Right. And, but they are taking aim with their allies at the Supreme Court on separation of church and state. What are their beliefs of these Christian nationalists regarding uh, separation of church and state and the Establishment Clause? It's important to note that this is a leadership-driven movement. It's not driven by the rank and file. And, you know, the leadership believes and, and promotes the ideas that America was founded as an authentically Christian nation. And we need to sort of somehow get back to that. Is there a right to, to take it back? And that those who don't conform to their beliefs and sort of political viewpoints are somehow un-American. And many of its uh, movement leaders say they don't believe there should be a separation of church and state. They rely on pseudo-historians, people like David Barton, to sort of rewrite our history and reinterpret our constitution. Yeah, who was discredited. Discredited by his own Christian publisher. Right. Yeah, it's, it's always bad news when your publisher take, wants your book off the shelf. Yeah, he was definitely discredited, and he was like their main guy for a long time. I think the least credible historian. In history. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to stop him because he tells the stories that the movement leaders want to hear. How would you categorize Christian nationalism? Is it a religious cult? Is it a political movement, a philosophy, a mood swing to modern culture? What exactly is it and what are their goals? It's an ideology, but it's also a political movement because it's a quest for power. So the strength of the movement is in its dense organizational infrastructure, which consists of right-wing policy groups like legal advocacy organizations. I'm just going to throw out some names here. It's by no means comprehensive, but policy groups, including the Family Research Council, Heritage Action, the folks on family, a legal advocacy sphere, groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, First Liberty Institute, Federalist Society, which plays a very uh, important role in funding uh, and promoting the careers of jurists with the supposedly correct, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, bona fides, uh, intellectual, political bona fides. And they're responsible for, for all the members uh, recently on the Supreme Court were members of the Federalist Society. All six conservative members of the Supreme Court are either former or, or current members of the Federalist Society. And uh, some 90% of Trump's appellate court appointees are have some ties to the Federalist Society. What, one thing people don't recognize about the Federalist Society is how much money flows through it. So Leonard Leo, who headed up the uh, Federal Society for many years uh, and has sort of shifted titles in recent years, but is still involved, he and his associates um, hauled in something like over $200 million between 2014 and 2017, according to a story in the Washington Post by Robert O'Hara. Pays well. It's, it's, pay, it's, it's a pretty, it pays well. Yeah, it, you know what? There's a lot of money that's going into transforming our courts. And at one point, you know, he said, I'd like to see the, the courts unrecognizable. And he said that Trump is a change we've been waiting for. He seems to have succeeded um, based on the recent rulings that has occurred. And it's very scary what we've seen. The leaders of the movement, is it top down or is it, is it grassroots? Uh, are the leaders serving their base or exploiting them in your view? I believe that the leaders are exploiting their base in order to exploit the rest of us. You know, when you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a wide number of people with very different ideas and backgrounds and interests. And, you know, they've been persuaded over time that of the issues that should matter in election cycles. I mean, the leaders of the movement know very well if you can vote, get people to vote on a single issue or two or three issues, you can control their vote. Right wing 
gatherings and strategy meetings and conferences I've attended, abortion is always like the number one issue. And, and as one, one anti-abortion leader said, there is no victory without unity. They know if they can get everybody to vote on the abortion issue, and then oh, they can control their vote. And so that's why they devote all these resources to these uh, very particular culture war issues. You had a terrific op-ed in the New York Times titled, Christian Nationalists Are Excited About What Comes Next. In your piece, you wrote, quote, it should terrify anyone concerned for the future of constitutional democracy. That warning sounds quite chilling. So what does come next and why should we be scared? Well, if you look into Alito's draft that uh, his, I'm sorry, his majority opinion in the Dobbs case He's there explicitly, you know, he and the justices that agree with him are explicitly going after so many rights that are personal liberties. It's not just abortion, bad as that is. And movement leaders are very explicit that they're not going to be content with overturning Roe. They want to introduce um, at the National Pro-Life Summit that I attended this year, two leaders of the movement, one who's affiliated with the Alliance Defending Freedom, and then Christian Hawkins of Students for Life of America said they want to introduce a constitutional amendment banning abortion nationwide. But it's going to take some time to set that up. In the meantime, it's going to be a 50-state battle. So frankly, it's going to divide our country even more than it is. I mean, our country is incredibly polarized right now. Um, and rather than unifying our country, which is sometimes what the leaders say they want to do, these actions are going to make our country less governable and stable and chaotic. You know, no one can see into the future, but we know from history that that chaos often prepares a way for a strong man to come in and say, I alone can fix it. And I do think that that is a danger of our time. You mentioned that breaking American democracy is an, an unintended side effect of Christian nationalism. It is the point of the project. Explain why it's so important for Christian nationalists to undermine our democracy. Because movement leaders reject the principles of equality and pluralism that represent the best of the American promise. You know, they even reserve some of their most poisonous words for Christians who identify as Christians of a different sort that are deeply opposed, morally opposed to the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. You know, it's a very identitarian movement. It's sort of insiders versus outsiders, the pure versus the impure. And if you listen to the rhetoric that they're spouting at a lot of these gatherings, like the last Road to Majority Conference, which I attended, they're really characterizing um, other Americans as an internal enemy, and not just people with a different political viewpoint, people who are actually, you know, frankly, demonic or under the control of Satan and, and not just worthy of contempt, but that actually, you know, need to be sort of defeated on this very visceral level. Frankly, this kind of rhetoric is very dangerous. It also makes democracy very difficult because how do you compromise with people that you've sold to your base as evil and godless? I think that's one of the biggest problems we face right now, that they have positioned themselves in such a way, many of the Republicans on the far right, they can't pass anything with Democrats because they, they've made it impossible given their rhetoric. I think in that 2021 Road to Majority Conference, I heard one speaker stand up there and say, okay, everybody, our job this, you know, from now on is just to block, 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 meaning make it impossible for uh, the Biden administration to pass any kind of legislation, no matter how, you know, we'd like to put, you know, some flowers by the side of the road, no matter how neutral it might be. But this is not how our democracy is supposed to run. I think we do best when we can engage in the politics of power sharing and we have two functioning political parties. But the, the challenge here is that, you know, this is a cohort that for many years 
the Republican Party thought they could make use of because they deliver such a reliable slice of the Republican vote. Well, over decades of the religious right sort of investing in these different features of infrastructure and sort of unifying its base in this way, they now control what happens in the GOP. Everything, you know, sort of radicalism of today's Christian nationalist movement is a heartbeat away from everything that happens in the Republican Party. And so sort of traditional Republicans um, often feel like they just don't have a party anymore. Yeah, they left the genie out of the bottle and now they can't get it back in so easily. You attended the right wing road to majority policy conference in Nashville. You mentioned that. And you noted a marked increase in politically violent imagery and rhetoric. You mentioned, for example, Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott. He warned the crowd, quote, the backlash is coming. Just mount up and ride to the sounds of the guns. And they are all over this country. It's time to take this country back. And he was just one of many who uh, alluded to guns and you know this violent imagery. Talk about the phenomenon of violent rhetoric and how it's grown in recent years with the political right and specifically Christian nationalists. Yeah, you're right about that. When it's very disturbing because while the rhetoric of, you know, warlike metaphors are common in political gatherings of all types. You know, we're in a war and we need to fight, you know, to win. And this year, it seemed remarkably more violent, more specific, and more tightly focused on fellow Americans as an internal enemy. And, and, we have four, and we have 400 million guns floating around this country. So when you hear that type of rhetoric and you see these school shootings or these mass shootings happening all the time, some with religious extremists, um, it suddenly takes a very real world turn. It's not just on the internet or somebody spouting views, but it, it seems menacing given the uh, how it's been taken offline into the real world. And in the context of the January 6th attempted coup and what we're learning about the involvement of the Christian nationalist movement and Christian nationalist leaders like Charlie Kirk and uh, in sort of riling up the base to believe in the lie of a stolen election, there's nothing more radical and violent than attempting to violently uh, overthrow the results of a legitimately decided election in America. I mean, that's just as un-American and seditious as it gets. And they came so close to succeeding, too. I mean, that's also alarming. And, and, um, and not enough people have been punished yet. So they seem to be strategizing on what's coming next. Uh, you mentioned in your New York Times article about the Seven Mountains movement, dominionism. And I've been to many of these right-wing conferences as well. And that has been always there, but it seems to be growing. Explain what this Seven Mountains movement is and why it's so alarming and why we should be so concerned about it. Well, Seven Mountains Dominionism is this ideology that says that Christians of a certain very reactionary variety are called to dominate the seven mountains or molders of culture, which by their uh, reckoning involves family, religion, government, education, arts and entertainment, and all of these other sort of main peaks of civilization in order to, quote unquote, take back dominion Satan. And it's an incredibly radical anti-democratic ideology, as you can imagine. In fact, there's video emerging where Ginny Thomas, uh, who's Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, um, his activist wife, religious right activist wife, is sort of in a sort of seven mountains gathering. And um, there was a, a an organization called the Ziklag Group uh, that recently had a, a big gathering. Mike Pence spoke. 
uh, Mike Flynn spoke, a number of other sort of major leaders. And at the last Road to Majority Conference, there were not one, but two Seven Mountains sort of uh, uh, events. One was a breakout session. The other one was a sort of panel from the main stage. But there's something else about it that I want to point out that a lot of people don't always recognize. Seven Mountains Dominionism, like other sort of forms of the Christian faith, are there's diversity within it. It is largely speaking, broadly speaking, a multiracial movement because it derives from sort of Pentecostal and neo-charismatic traditions. Yeah, the new apostolic reformation is yeah. behind that with, with crazy people like Cindy Jacobs and Lou Engel and Mike Bickle. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of these Seven Mountains uh, gatherings, that they, they were very multiracial panels and, and events. It's a way of drawing new new um, members of the rank and file into their movement. I think the movement is very defensive overall about this sort of legitimate history of kind of the through line of, of racism that sort of runs through the movement and they're trying to diversify. Yeah, there was a big push with that with Lou Sheldon uh, several years back with the Traditional Values Coalition. And uh, he was making some some progress until uh, Hurricane Katrina happened. And then that uh, really undermined those efforts for a while. Uh, you wrote that Americans who stand outside the movement uh, have consistently underestimated its radicalism. I find that, too. It's very difficult to get people to believe what is happening, even though these extremists are telling you flat out what they plan to do. Are, are people finally getting it after January 6th or in your view, are they still largely in denial? You know, it's not that they're hiding. It's that we're not listening. They're telling us that they hate our democracy and they'd like to destroy it and they'd like to establish a more theocratic authoritarian order. We should listen to them and, and believe what they're saying. Yeah, we, re we really should. I wonder if it's something in, I don't know, genes or I don't know what it is where people, when something's so terrifying, that the, your mind turns away from it, that they go to something entertainment. Um, because again, they're telling us what they believe. What is it in your view about people that they just don't want to hear what's in front of them? I think part of the challenge is that it involves religion. And most of us would like to think of religion as a private matter. We all want to be tolerant and respect, respect one another's faith, if any, and sort of leave discussions about politics and policy without having to Relate it to this, what we see as this sort of very private realm. And, and religious right leaders know that, and people like Trump know that. Look, Trump did what every religious nationalist did. Of course, he's hardly a model of this sort of uh, upstanding values voter himself. But it doesn't matter because what he does is he, you know, he does what every religious uh, nationalist leader does around the world, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in Erdogan's Turkey, or whether it's in Putin's Russia. When these leaders bind themselves, to hyper-conservative religious figures in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. We rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what Trump did. He had these rallies and he always has preachers as warm-up acts. So he's trying to sort of bubble wrap himself in sanctimony because he knows very well, they know very well that that, that makes it harder to sort of go after what they're saying. They can say, wait, you're attacking my religion rather than you're attacking my grotesquely anti-democratic actions. Yeah. And, and Putin did it too. He tied himself to the Eastern Orthodox Church. They backed him. He essentially paid them off. And now they're backing his war in Ukraine. So we see the evil of this in, in a sense, how these leaders tie themselves together with religion to give them cover for some of the uh, not so nice things that they're doing. I'm gonna, yeah. What they're going to create is not like a Christian democracy. It's usually a kleptocratic, nepotistic, 
autocracy where uh, there's very little uh, democratic check on power and very little ability to have any kind of public scrutiny. And that's why they also go after the media. That's one of the first things they do because they don't want they don't want uh, people investigating what they're doing. And if they can discredit the media, then they can get away with the kleptocracy. And that's one of the first things Trump did: the fake news, the the, the bad media. And at his rallies, they went after the media. They made it difficult. I mean, that's sort of they all operate off the same playbook in a sense. I'm going to ask you to to speculate here. I know. You don't like to do that, but we're going to I'm going to ask you something. Um, if the religious right and these Christian nationalists had their way and created the type of society they wanted, either through a coup or maybe because of the economy, they actually won at the ballot box. What does that society look like in a few years or in a few days? I mean, what does it look like if Christian nationalists succeed and run this country? You know, we can look to theocracies all around the world and and what do they look like? Do we really want to live in any of those types of situations? So I I think we have plenty of models of theocracy and the corruption that it engenders, uh, the oppression that it imposes on its people. Um, And I think there are always a lot of unintended consequences as well. I think a lot of folks who are sort of when they, you know, cast their vote for the political candidate who promises to end abortion, reunite church and state, they may think they know what they're getting, but uh, they'll often get something very different. Yeah. And a spooky part of your New York Times essay, you wrote about the increasing role of vigilantism in terms of abortion. Explain what you meant and the real world impact on women of this vigilantism. Oh, that was fascinating. So I was at the Road to Majority Conference and this woman named Chelsea Human. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She played a really strong role in promoting the Texas bounty law. It means you can have sort of civil enforcement mechanisms rather than government enforcement mechanisms, which makes it so much harder to sue. You can't sort of sue the government or accuse the government of um, infringing on your rights. So if your neighbor overhears, oh, I've missed my period this month or fails to see, you know, whatever, um, goes through your trash and says, oh, wait, looks like so-and-so didn't get her period this month. They can sort of investigate and sue you if you've like, you know, aided and abetted an abortion or something. I mean, it's really grotesque. And that could even be a driver that they, exactly. like someone who drove you to the uh, a clinic or somewhere. And she talked about how they're going to pursue these long new ideas, new legal ideas, a long arm, uh, arm of the law. She called it a long arm of the law. You know, they can do accuse Uh, people who aided and abetted an abortion of wrongful death, but not just in the states where abortion is illegal, but also in the states where abortion is legal. So someone in Texas or Georgia could accuse an internet service provider in, say, Massachusetts, go after them, say, you aided and abetted an abortion because your internet server provided information about how to obtain health care in that state. Or I'm, I'm going to go after a car company because you your your taxi provided that person who needed health care with a ride. Well, they're also um, going to go after abortion pills, which the FDA has approved. So that's another uh, that's another issue we're dealing with right now. So they're they're going they're not just going to be content without lawing it in the state, but they are uh, going to set the long arm of the law. People realize that when these laws are passed, there has to be a regime to enforce them. And I mean, we look at the Stasi, for example, in East Germany with neighbors uh, and, and, and you know, tattling on each other. Now they've set up hotlines in Florida, for example, with the don't say gay law where you can tattletale on teachers. Everybody's watching each other and turning each other in. And now they're paying you for it with these these uh, 
you know, with, with this bounty hunter kind of, uh, uh, you know, with the money, this is really scary because you, in order to pass these laws, somebody has to enforce them. It's incredibly un-American. It does remind me of a situation, you know, former Soviet Union people sort of uh, tattling one another to the state and, you know, no one can trust anybody anymore. And um, and if people think that that bounty hunting isn't really going to happen. Are you kidding? Like, that's a huge amount of money. I mean, there are going to be, you know, grifters out there who are like, yeah, hey, all I need to do is, you know, get four or five of those a year. And that pretty much pays my bills. I mean, that's really disgusting. Yeah, it, it really is. And they also could do it um, with, with gay rights. And we saw with the Dobbs abortion ruling, Clarence Thomas mentioned coming after all rights based on privacy. That includes gay marriage uh, or the right to sexual intimacy. And the uh, attorney general, I, I believe, of Texas said he'd enforce it. And we've got all this new surveillance technology now that makes it much easier. You can you know, search what people are doing on the internet, for example, and what they're searching. Uh, that app that people use to have dates, if you're gay, that could be used as evidence for potentially a felony. So this is something to be really concerned about. Do you think they're gonna be going after gay rights next? Do you think they're gonna be also going after contraception? I think they're definitely going to go after same-sex marriage uh, because so many of movement leaders have said they want to. And here's the thing. A lot of people said, oh, they can't really overturn Roe versus Wade. And even, you know, Supreme Court justices lied when they were asked about it. And then they do it, you know, and then the movement leaders are very clear on what they want to do. They're like, again, they're not hiding. They're just like, you know, we, we're going to turn this into a 50-state battle. Then we're going to pursue a uh, you know constitutional amendment banning abortion nationwide. And they also talk about, you know, they're going to go after same-sex marriage, certainly after certain types of contraception, anything that they can conceive of as interfering with fertilization, perhaps. You're going after the right to privacy, which fundamentally affects so many of our personal liberties. There are a lot of women in this movement, surprisingly, in the Christian nationalists. Uh, and their position on abortion is, is very scary, but it goes far beyond that. We mentioned contraception. What do these folks see as the role of women in society? That's a really interesting question, Wayne. Thank you so much. Because um, first of all, you know, I go every year to the national, um, uh, the sort of March for Life, and you see all of these kids who are bussed in from religious schools. And they don't really have a choice. It's like, okay, kids, you know, they're private religious schools and they bust the kids in. And the kids are kind of groomed from a very early age for being, you know, very strictly anti-abortion and getting involved in this kind of anti-abortion activism. I think for a woman on the, on the right who wants to have a political career, you can do that. But it's almost like anti-abortion activism is this Rubicon through which you need to pass. So once you've established your bona fides, you know, the movement knows that they're, you know, going to be implementing these laws that are going to hurt a lot of women and girls. So they need women to sort of be the public face of it and be like, I am the pro-life generation, that kind of thing. I think a lot of the women have been sold this line that they are defending their dignity within the context of, of the family and within the context of heterosexual marriage. And if you sort of try and scratch your head about that, you could look at the words of somebody like Phyllis Schlafly, who wrote many years ago, she had this great quote, I'm gonna try and remember it, but I'll probably end up paraphrasing it. She said, since men, uh, since women bear the physical consequences of you know, the sex act by having children, men must be forced to, essentially forced to pay their share by 
you know, taking care of the woman and the child. And her view was that like, if men are granted this kind of sexual freedom where they're not forced, forced by society and perhaps even by law to take care of women and children, then everything's just gonna go to hell and, you know, families will, you know, collapse, et cetera. Well, we know that this doesn't work <laughs> because, um, you know, people abandon their families uh, regardless of, you know, whether they're, you know, forced to or not, um, even if there's uh, consequences, uh, even if a child is born, it doesn't mean that like families will stay together. But more to the point, it's really, uh, it's a very dark view of human sexuality. It's a very dark view of, frankly, of men. Um, and it's it really underestimates the fact that, um, you know, a lot of people want, you know, the decision whether to have children is an incredibly personal one. It, and, and it's an incredibly important, it's the most important. Look, as a mother of two, married mother of two, having children is the most important decision you can make. And, um, you know, deciding with whom to have children is one of the most important decisions you can make. And, and you, you want to be ready for it. And you wanna be able to sort of um, do it with joy and with love rather than, you know, be compelled to do so. Right. Of course, they want to stick their nose in everybody's business. It's like all the nosy neighbors across the United States have organized into a, a, a movement. Uh, race is always with America right beneath the surface. How does the role of race play with Christian nationalism? Because it seems like you mentioned earlier there were some parts of that movement that embrace uh, a more worldly view in terms of race and others that are white, not nationalists, but white supremacists. Uh, talk about that, that role of the interplay of race in this movement? That's a very interesting question, really important question. So the answer is complex because the movement, you know, for a lot of the white people in the movement, America's once supposedly all Christian and all white. And the movement also, there's a kind of intellectual through line between pro-slavery theology, you know, the pro-slavery theologians, people like um, James Henley Thornwell, Robert Louis Dabney, they had this idea that America should be founded as an explicitly Christian nation with laws rooted in the Bible and hierarchies ordained by God, always men over women and white people over black people too. And they use that theology to justify slavery. Um, and then even if you look in the you know, um, middle of this century, you had people like Bob Jones who called segregation God's established order. So there is that through line between the sort of post-slavery theology and the sort of religious nationalism in America we're seeing today. But now here's the big but. In recent years, the movement knows it needs to diversify because um, you know, they can see the demographic future as clearly as you or I can. So they have um, some of the more far-thinking uh, strategists, people like Ralph Reed and, uh, and many others, they've made a, a conscious effort to reach out to community leaders, uh, I would say religious leaders of color, in order, because you know, if you can get the pastors, you can get the, the congregants. So um, there are all these new groups uh, like uh, Ministerios Hispanos, where they draw together um, Latino pastors, for instance, um, black and Latino pastors, and uh, get them sort of inculcated in the culture war issues and get their congregations engaged in politics. So between 2016 and 2020, former President Trump gained something like eight points among 
uh, Hispanic and Latino voters nationwide. And a lot of that shift happened in areas that were the focus of religious right leaders' efforts. Yeah, we, we've seen that in Southern Texas, for example. There were several far-right uh, Latino and Latina lawmakers that have been elected to Congress and are now trying to get reelected. Uh, what is the role of online um, growth for white nationalists and and, and uh, Christian nationalists. It seems like it, it was more difficult for them to find each other before, but now they've got these online forums and they've been emboldened because they sit around in their bubble talking to each other all day and organizing. This is true. I also think that Trump made Christian nationalism more broadly appealing. So a lot of his followers were people who didn't even identify, they don't go to church, they didn't identify as particularly religious before, all of a sudden they're self-identifying as evangelical. Yeah, when it's convenient, they they bring up the Bible, when it helps their argument or they think it does. Uh, what do you think is the best way to counter this movement to save democracy? I think that there's a, a long-term strategy and there's a short-term strategy. I mean, there's no shortage of avenues for involvement. I mean, first of all, you know, one of the things the religious right does really well is they turn out their people to vote in disproportionate numbers. Our, our uh, volunteer for school boards are to what's going to be worrisome is the to volunteer uh, to monitor elections and have it have a role there. They're very they are they are phenomenal at that. Exactly. I mean, they get that politics is local and they get their folks really engaged and they even when they're losing, they always maintain a positive voting culture. So, you know, no matter who you are, you've got a role to play. And they're really kind of good at that. And, um, you know, sometimes they feel like there's a lot, you know, too much defeatism uh, among those of us who reject these politics of conquest and division. But here's what we should be really encouraged by. We are more numerous than they are. It's just that we don't vote and we're not as engaged and active in the same proportion. So. You know, they if you can turn out your people to vote in vastly disproportionate numbers, which they do, you can dominate in election cycles. Time and time again, when I was researching my book, The Power Worshippers, I would come across a video or listen to a speech and one of their folks, one of their leaders would say, all you need is 10% of the population to turn the cruise ship around. Because if you can get that 10%, almost like really engaged, you can actually really do it. Yeah, in fact, I went to a right-wing conference, The Awakening in Lynchburg, Virginia, and one of the pastors called them force multipliers, that you can get 100 dedicated men and they could take over a whole city if they commit themselves to it. And that is what their strategy is in many cases. That sounds really interesting. Wait, it was a Great Awakening event? Or? Uh, it was, yeah, it was the Awakening Conference at Lynchburg, Virginia. Oh, it was a reawaken, reawaken, yeah. Right. So, I mean, that was what they were they were actually preaching back then. And um, this was several years ago. And I thought about it and I said, that's what they're doing. And they've been good at it. And we've got to, we've got to learn from this or we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. I think that, you know, there, we need to invest in democratic political infrastructure we need to defend voting rights so our democracy depends on it because it does. They spent decades investing in right-wing policy groups, in legal advocacy spheres, in messaging platforms. And um, we need to do uh, some of that as well. On talk radio, my last show I was talking about, we don't have any talk radio in the entire country, which turns people's cars into propaganda pods. And they flip the stations. And even if they don't stay on the stations, they're still getting bits and pieces of this messaging. And I think it's been very destructive, but I think it cuts across the board. For some reason, their donors uh, see further into the future and ours just want to get on their name on a plaque half the time. And it's very frustrating that it's like this. Name on a 
plaque or they're like, what's the little trick that's going to turn it around? Like um, David Barton said many years ago, arm yourself with the mentality of a distance runner, not a sprinter. He's right. And that's exactly what they've done. We're really seeing the consequence of decades of planning and infrastructure building. We don't have a council for national policy. The council for national policy, as you know, one of the key networking organizations that gets the leaders of all of these different features of their infrastructure together, not all of them, but many of them. It's, it's one of the main networking uh, organizations. And it sort of um, brings them together with big donors. It's uh, Betsy DeVos's father-in-law said, it brings together the doers of, and the donors of the Christian right. Um, you know, we don't have anything on that level. So we need to sort of start thinking more strategically. Okay, last question, uh, is it too late? between the gerrymandering, the way they have set up the Republican legislators of the states, what they're doing with the Supreme Court through Mitch McConnell, how they took it over. Are we past midnight or can we save this democracy in the next election or two? You know, I heard this wonderful Reverend uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, who said, you know, the hope is in the struggle. And I think that none of us can see into the future but our country has faced crossroads before. And, um, you know, we have uh, made it through at least to this point. So even though the right is using the tools of autocracy to try to dismantle our democracy, sort of an election denial and all that kind of stuff, I think the features, that the tools of modern democratic political culture can can still be used to 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 try to restore democracy. Let's hope so. Thank you so much for appearing on War of the Words. I it's great having you, and uh, you always offer so much insight on this issue. And we'd love to have you back sometime. Uh, what's next for you? Any any uh, conferences coming up? Uh, well, um, I'm always uh, eager to go to writing conferences. I always say it's the most fun you can have without getting arrested. And um, well, if they have their way, soon you will be. Okay. <laughs> It's actually, um, I don't think we can really understand what's happening in in politics in America today without really understanding this movement, its people, its leadership, and where it's going. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I saw some of these people on the rise before they were well-known, like Ted Cruz would go to these things, Ken Cuccinelli, for example, um, as they worked their way up. And you saw, like you saw some talent, you're like, yeah, they're probably going to go somewhere. And that's not a good thing. Yeah, you've been uh, researching this movement for a very, very long time and sounding the alarm is even in earlier times when so many folks weren't listening, but today a lot more folks are listening. Thank you for listening to War of the Words. I'm your host, Wayne Besson. You can check out our podcast on every single major platform, Spotify, Anchor, and Apple. Until we meet again, see you next time.